Welcome to this episode of Money Moves. Matthew here. On today's episode, my co-host Stephen and I will sit down with Robin Khan to discuss the Babson Financial Literacy Project, one of our partners. The project has held over 180 workshops since 2018 and has hosted over 7,000 students, educating them on saving, investing, and budgeting in a way that is relatable and conveyable to our generation. Stephen, could you tell us a bit more about Robin? Robin is an alumni of the University of Michigan and Columbia School of Business. She previously worked in finance and business evaluation for many years. Through her work as the director of the Babson Project, she has spearheaded personal finance workshops and initiatives, helping teach college students and adults how to manage their money. Her years of experience translate into a winning formula for teaching personal finance. We're delighted to partner with the Babson Financial Literacy Project and to have this conversation with Robin. Um, greetings all. Thank you for having me. Um, my name is Robin Khan. I'm the program director for the Babson Financial Literacy Project. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We know that the Babson Financial Literacy Project does a lot for not only the financial education sphere, but also the general community. Could you expand more on that role and what the Babson Financial Literacy Project does? Um, the Babson Financial Literacy Project is a nonprofit program um, and we're des- our real goal is to help young adults acquire the knowledge and skills they need for long-term financial prosperity. Um, our, our workshops are interactive, they're face-to-face mostly online um, and our goal is to help young adults build lifelong strategies as I mentioned for budgeting, building credit, retirement and more. Um, we run workshops for high school s- um, students, mostly seniors, college students and the wider community Um, And our goal really is to be face-to-face, to to be interactive, because we think learning in a community setting um, is the best way to learn. There's a lot of online information, but that's um, something we can talk about later. But our our goal is to really be face-to-face because we think learning happens best that way. Yeah, I think that's a really important role, especially in in a time where financial education and personal finance is so important beyond just the old saying of just working hard. You do need to have a level of knowledge and experience with personal finance. And I think how the BAPSA Financial Literacy Project approaches it through a more interactive approach really creates tangible results. But of course that comes with its challenges. So what challenges has the BAPSA Financial Literacy Project faced? Sure, so um, let me just go back to sort of this whole notion about face-to-face. One thing that I didn't mention too is that it's really important when you engage young people or anybody for that matter to engage them on topics that are relatable. So we, we strive really hard to do that. So we'll talk about a credit card situation that you guys might face um, at your age. We talk about a budgeting scenario where people right out of college are deciding between living at home or living in an apartment. So again, it's not only about being interactive and face-to-face, it's about relatable um, and not just showing PowerPoint slides and just asking people to read or listen because their eyes gloss over. Um, so we've had some really great successes and we get really good feedback from um, participants um, we run both um, workshops face-to-face, but we also run train-the-trainer programs for organizations that want to take our program and use it on their own. Um, that said, um, we've been actually, before we talk about challenges, I'd like to talk about successes because it would be sort of one-sided. Um, we've been running workshops for about four years now, and we recently hit, um, um, we've run over 220 workshops, and we've had 
um, filled over 9,000 seats in these workshops. So we're pretty excited about that. Um, we're closing in on 10,000. So obviously we feel we have a winning formula and we've gotten really terrific feedback. Um, but as you point out, there are definitely challenges. Um, as you can imagine, being a nonprofit um, during COVID times or really any time, um, it's hard to get funding um, because there's so many other priorities that foundations want to give to and even donors. Um, we've had some good success, but we definitely can do more and do better. Um, so um, the way that we overcome that challenge is that we also have um, programs where we charge. Um, so we have high school programs for seniors where in the summer there's a, are workshops that they can um, students can attend and hopefully build some foundation for college or um, technical school or wherever they're going next. Um, the other way we overcome that challenge is we have a train the trainer program that generates fees too. Um, the other, the other, so that's the funding side of it. The other challenge that we get, and this was sort of a surprise to me, is just because you build it doesn't mean they come. So we actually have grants to run workshops in community colleges and colleges in California. And again, we've had some partners, we're working with about five or six schools right now, and we have some partners that do really well with getting um, attendees and others that don't. So what we've learned is that, you know, young people, probably any anybody for that matter, everybody's busy and they always can think of a, another another thing to do. So we've created, um, we've tried to work with our partners to, to do better. We've created, um, some of our partners offer incentives, some of our partners tie this um, programming to financial aid. Um, and we also have a certificate program because um, people like to see, you know, skills on their resume that they can talk about during the interview process. Definitely, I think that's really important where if, as an organization, recognizing some of the challenges that might come your way and always having a strong leader that's ready to pivot or make any decisions. I think we've noticed that as well if we run into problems where even with funding, um, we do kind of have to find new ways. And it's sure it kind of isn't the most ideal scenario, but it's always almost fun and allows me to explore like creative sides when when we do reach those kind of tough points. Yeah, good point. Good point. Mm-hmm. So you yourself as a leader, you faced some challenge. You faced some challenges, but you've also have a lot of experience in the business world, whether that's working with financial companies or working with nonprofits. How do you think those lessons you've learned in your career have translated into your work with the BAPS and Financial Literacy Project? Well, it's interesting. So I started my career many years ago on Wall Street following food stocks, and I knew quickly that I didn't want to do that. Um, so I went, actually, I went to Columbia Business School and I switched to management consulting because I, my, my biggest interest and my skill, I think, is fixing things, um, building things. That's really what I like to do. Um, so after that, I worked at Fidelity Investments and marketing and business planning. I've been on consulting on my own. And the last seven years, I've been in the financial literacy space. So I think what makes me a good contributor, a good leader, is having a diverse skill set. I mean, I, I always say that I'm a jack of all trades. I used to say the master of nothing, but I think I'm becoming a master in quite a few things. Um, so I'm a math person. I'm a strategy person. I'm, I like to write. So I think one of the keys to being successful is exposing yourself early on in your career to different opportunities to help build those skills. Um, if you don't have them, it's a good way to create um, new skills. Or if you do have them already, it's a good thing to strengthen um, what you already know. So um, between having a broad skill set um, really enjoying this kind of work, building and trying to figure out puzzles. Um, and then finally, the third piece is knowing, you know, if you don't know the answer, who else can you call? 
Um, can you rely on other people? I'd never believe in, in going it alone. I have colleagues that I work with and I just feel like I'm always good asking their opinion because I think that two heads are usually better than one. Yeah, that's like a really good point because even when Matthew and I are running this organization, you know, we've had a lot of partners, whether it be through Hack Plus, our fiscal sponsor, or through people like you who partner with us and come on our podcast, having people that can come we can talk to, rely on for information and ask questions has really helped us grow our organization and made us better than we were before. Just pivoting to talk a little bit about curriculum. So there's a lot of conversation about how do we teach kids whether that be in the classroom or outside of the classroom, about money, about personal finance. How do we keep them engaged and interested in learning about how to manage their money, credit card debt, paying off student loans? So what do you think the key is to effective curricula on topics like personal finance? Great, great question. So I kind of alluded to it before. So, you know, the fact that we just don't slap up PowerPoint slides or expect people to go to the website and read it on their own, I think those two approaches, I'm not going to say they're bad. I just don't think that they're necessarily as powerful because they don't engage. They don't force, you know, young people to sit there and look at the situation and talk about it. So um, our view is that, again, we, we want it to be face-to-face. -face. We use relevant examples. And the other thing, too, is when we, we run our workshops, we don't just talk to people. We run polls and we ask them questions about credit cards. How many of you have credit cards? How many of you know your interest rate? So that engages people. We also run, um, we have some videos on some more complex topics like compound interest, and we find that's a really powerful way to get the message across. Um, we, we problem solve together. So we'll talk about situations and we'll ask the audience to say, okay, what do you think Devin should do in this situation? If he can't afford um, an Xbox and you know his credit card is maxed out and he's not paying his bill, what's another thing to think about? And you know the group will come up with things like, well, maybe he should wait until he has more money or maybe he should buy one used. So things of that nature, we engage and we, we force our participants to think about the topic. So I think that's really powerful. Um, and um, I guess finally, I would say the proof is in the pudding. And we have a 95% plus um, satisfaction in terms of how valuable the lessons are and also how likely they are to apply what they've learned. So I think that's really important. Um, a few other things. I used to work for a K through 12 financial literacy pro, um, um, nonprofit. And um, I, I'm, I'm of the belief that the earlier you start, the better, uh, but it's very difficult to get into schools. I mean, it's just not a mandate. Um, less than half of all states require any sort of financial education. Um, so that's clearly an issue and colleges are not um, requiring it either. Um, so I think one thing that we find really valuable and to answer your question is that if we can, if we can reach young adults at key pivot points in their life, when they're about to make important financial decisions, that's really important. So when you're going off to college for the very first time, it's really important that you know how to manage a credit card. You're, you're gonna be inundated with credit cards once you get there, um, credit card offers that is. So we wanna get people when they're about to launch and they're about to make important decisions. And then after they graduate from college is another important time to early adulthood because you're on your own for the first time. And it's nice to know how to start saving right away for retirement if you can through a 401k to think about budgeting and, and to save. So um, again, it's all about face-to-face -face engagement. Um, again, online is, is fine. Um, it's better than nothing, but we found that people really don't know what they don't know and they're not motivated to learn on their own. That makes sense because especially your point about targeting people when they're most 
needing this information. For example, like you can't convince like a 10 year old or an 11 year old very easily, hey, come to my workshop, come listen to my podcast about money or about credit cards. They're gonna make, I don't care about any of this, but you know, you can't tell like a 19 year old, it's very easy to tell them, hey, you're graduating, you're gonna get a credit card, you probably have student loans, why don't you come learn about the risks behind this and how you can better manage your money? Because those are the people, those are the demographics they're going to most appreciate and value this information. I think for younger students, I think the way that that financial education is taught is not so much about the core principles, but more about behaviors, like needs versus wants. Um, what do you really need versus what do you want? Do you really need that fancy pair of you know, glow-in-the-dark sneakers, or can you settle for the ones that are just basic? Um, and the other thing, too, you know, kids get allowances. Kids get money as gifts, so starting to save. There's lots of little things that you can teach to young people, but um, you know the hardcore lessons like compound interest, credit cards, et cetera, are really meant for older people, older older youth, teenagers. Yeah, agreed. To that point about behaviors, um, one of our organization's partners, Neil Godfrey. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of her, but I she have. is yeah. She was the founder of the First Women's Bank, and she actually talks about that extensively. And she was on our podcast uh, a few months ago, actually, and we discussed this for a large portion of the podcast because we feel like financial education in general doesn't focus enough on the behavior aspect of things and things like impulse control and just in general, kind of that money muscle beyond just this is what a credit card is, like more so here are the tools. Mindset. Yeah, Mindset, exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's interesting because I just, before this, I was walking my dog and I came across a woman who just, you know, she's 90 actually, and lovely woman in the neighborhood. And she said, what are you doing today? And I told her, you know, I'm interviewing on a podcast and I have my work to do. And she said, she's going shopping. And she said, I said, what do you need, Barbara? And she said, nothing. I just like to shop. I didn't want to give her any advice because I figure at 90, she's set in her ways. But I, all I kept thinking of needs versus wants, needs versus wants. So... <laughs> That's cool. I like that. Um, but in general, that muscle, how do you think you build that beyond beyond just a PowerPoint? Like, how do you get that actual muscle working in actuality beyond just kind of knowing what financial topics are or the intricacies of them? Um, well, I think the behavior needs to be taught early, and I un unfortunately think that parents need to be involved in that. It doesn't only have to be about money. It could be about other ways to sort of um, control yourself, right? No impulse behavior. You know, if, the, if you go into a candy store and your kid wants candy, you have to, you know, say, well, not now or it's dinner time or already had candy. It's just not, it's not, it's not, um, it's not only about money, it's a behavior. Like, I remember we, we ran a workshop um, when I worked at my last um, nonprofit, and we went to a school system. We talked about needs versus want. We kept watching this little girl sitting there in the audience looking at her sneakers. And that's where I came up with this with this example. And she raised her hand at the end and she said, maybe I, next time when I go out to get my sneakers, I shouldn't get these. They glow in the dark. I can just get the more basic ones. So I think I think it's a, a, a conversation that has to be happening. I mean, I think behaviors happen over time, right? I don't think you can just say needs versus wants. Just only go after what you need, not what you want. I think it has to be a repetitive thing that starts at home. And I think, I mean, that's frankly why um, financial education should start earlier to help behaviors. Um, so, and also, I mean, I think the other thing too is that it's a discipline. So when it comes to budgeting, I think something like that is a behavior, right? To start 
creating that message early and often. And, and that's an important one. That is behavioral, just to keep budgeting um, and to always revisit your budget. So there are some things that are behavioral um, concepts in finance. Not all of them are, but budgeting is one, um, um, things of that nature. I don't know if I answered the question. I think it takes a lot of different um, a lot of different, there are a lot of different ways to help change behavior. I don't think it's just one thing. Definitely agreed. And like when looking at like the personal finance curriculum as a whole, you know, there are a lot of people working to help improve it, right? You have nonprofits, you have school districts, teachers, educators. So speaking as a person who's leading the kind of the charge, the Babson project, what like holes or problems do you see in current curriculum now? And then how do you think these issues come up? whether they've been on the execution side, the planning side, what are some of these issues that you currently see that are most important to you? Um, so I, I think when it comes to implementation of financial education in schools, I'll start with that, it's tricky for a few reasons. Number one, like I mentioned before, less than half the states require any sort of financial education. So um, there's so much going on in the schools. I'm sure you've heard this before. It's really hard to bring a new, a new um, subject matter in. Even though you often ask young adults, what's the one class you wish you had in high school? And they all, many of them say financial education. So that's one thing. Um, so that's sort of the delivery aspect. The other is, and we've seen this, I saw, I've seen this in my last um, position when I was working with K through 12, and I see it now where we work with a lot of colleges. Um, educators, for the most part, are not comfortable teaching financial education because they either aren't confident in their own skills or they're just not confident in delivering the message. So I think that's another issue as well. Um, and again, at the college level, it's sort of the same thing with respect to delivery. We often want to bring our programs and teach colleges how to use our information. But again, there's often a shortage of staff. So, so those are definitely challenges. Did I answer your question fully or feel free to follow up? I wasn't quite clear on yeah. the question. And then like with these like problems, how do you think we could better target younger students? How do you think we can better convince in these K through 12 students? Because I definitely do agree, like you said before, it's perhaps easier to target people who are older, people who are going to college or getting their first job and facing these issues. How do you think we could target these K through 12 students better? All right, so if we're gonna assume that it's difficult to be in the schools, um, um, you know, are there parent groups who would be willing to take this on? Again, teaching finance to kids isn't that hard because the principles aren't really that hard. It's more behaviors. So are there parent groups? Are there Girl Scouts? Are there Boy Scouts where they could bring this education on? Um, I think the distribution challenge is a really tricky one. I think um, one, one aspect we haven't talked about is parents. Parents could be a really, really important um, way for children to learn. Um, because you know you spend a lot of time at home, but parents are not comfortable for the most part talking about finance. So is there a way to engage parents and kids? Um, perhaps, it's just hard to know where, where to gain the most traction. Um, I'm curious, what, what have you heard about this from other speakers? Have you heard any interesting ideas? Most speakers and people we work with typically talk about Mostly what you're touching on is that parents should care about it more and if not only care about it, but actually start to take action. So Neil stands out the most because she worked with this kind of extensively for the past 30 years, basically. And she talked about really starting from five years old, six years old. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's really where it starts because 
tons of studies have shown is that from one to seven years old is where behavior actually starts and where these where these money muscles actually end up being put to use later if if a student understands kind of the basics of impulse control from one to seven years old all they need is the information at 15 years old to be able to put that into place later but unfortunately what we've realized is that that's not typically how it works most parents don't care and quite frankly families in lower socioeconomic statuses don't have the information or even if they did they personally don't implement those uh, those tactics so they have trouble teaching it to their children and what we found is that it is largely institutional at that point at that level and we we find it hard to target those problems so oftentimes we find ourselves resoluting to lower or easier to target problems but our larger goal is to and eventually be able to make impact on those larger institutional problems so how has how do you think you've even targeted those problems institutionally or how can we start to target those problems so again, I mean, I have to say that, um, you know, I was working in the K through 12 space. And I mean, one reason why I decided to move to work at Babson was because we have more flexibility to reach students or young adults um, in terms of our model. And we also are reaching people at really important times of their lives. So um, I think education, you know, imparting this when students are younger is important, but I think that's a harder nut to crack than it is when when you're 17 or 18. So I think that's one thing that's really important. Um, We have lots of nooks and crannies that we can go into. So for example, we have a network of libraries that we've been running workshops through. Funding is scarce. So as opposed to asking one partner to join us, we asked a bunch and it spread like wildfire. And we we had 33 workshops this past year um, I'm sorry, 33 libraries in the Boston area who participated. So that enables us to expand scale and reduce costs for our partners. So I think that's one way to do it. Um, you know, libraries is one example. We work through colleges, community colleges. We work through organizations like City Year. Um, we're trying to, we can go a lot of different places. There's a lot more ways for us to branch out and to do our work. The one thing we haven't talked about is um, for us, you know, one of our goals is to really help underserved communities. It's really important because we wanna help close, I mean, the financial knowledge gap is everywhere, but if we can help underserved communities, perhaps we can move the needle on the wealth gap. So there's a number of organizations that we, we've we talked to. Um, we have a really great relationship with, um, they all, I can think of three of them. They help, um, they help teens and young adults get into college and succeed and they all help underserved populations and they do amazing work. So we're hoping that we can get funding to run workshops um, with these organizations. Um, We're sort of at the the turning point right now where we're keeping our fingers crossed and we should be able to hear something very soon. So again, our approach is different. We can control the delivery. Um, We look for networks so we can reduce costs for our partners. That to me is, is is a way to achieve scale and to have impact. That's amazing. And I really like what the Babson Project is doing, targeting these underserved communities. Because like, like you, Matt, touched on before, a lot of these underserved communities, they don't have the previous knowledge from their parents, whether that because of like 
they're, they're, they're immigrants who just moved here or because their parents weren't in that position to have to access to this personal finance education. So really teaching these communities can really help close that gap and hopefully close the wealth gap later on going down the road. So that's a really good thing that I think the Babson Project is doing. But just yeah, speaking generally. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just speaking generally, like if you were to motivate or tell any, anybody listening to this podcast who's perhaps interested in exploring personal finance but isn't sure where to start, what would you tell them to do? What would I tell them to do? Um, well, I'm there. Are, there are some online um, places to go. Um, there's always information available. Um, I mean, if you're in a high school, I would suggest um, seeing if your high school can get a program. If you're really financial, like you guys, run one of your own. I mean, I know my son, and when he was in high school, I think there was a personal finance club, and he was one of the, the heads of it. So try to make a ground-up effort, or um, yeah, right, a ground-up approach to um, bringing it to your school. Um, there's always us. We run up workshops for high schools and for high school students. Um, and again, you can always find information online. So if you're motivated and hungry, there's always places you can go. Um, ask your library if your library is interested. Um, bring it to to, um, to patrons. We offer that too. So I think there's a number of ways to handle it. But I assume you're specifically probably thinking about high school and college students. So I would say start a club. Ask your administration to bring it to the students either during class, after class, if you're in college. Um, again, we have programs there, either a train-the-trainer program where we can teach colleges to, to run the program, or colleges can sign up as part of the network as well, similar to the libraries. Yeah, I think that's that's powerful. I think people can take action in their communities to end up improving themselves and kind of reflecting inward and doing it for yourself, because of course, we discussed institutional problems, and that's an issue, but it's going to take a lot of work to really move the needle on that. Uh, do you have any upcoming seminars that you'd like to share with our audience that the Babson Financial Literacy Project is hosting, or maybe any other social medias, or the programs you were mentioning earlier, where could our audience kind of sign up for them or get gain access to that? Um, so in terms of our programs, we typically go, go through delivery partners like libraries, colleges, high schools. Um, I mean, the best way, I think, really to reach out to us, um, I mean, if anybody's really interested in what, in what we're doing, um, you can email us at the Babson BFLP, I'm sorry, BabsonFLP at gmail.com, or even just BFLP at Babson. Let me, let me rephrase this. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at BFLP at babson.edu. Again, our email address is B as in boy, F as in Frank, L as in Lisa, P as in Patty, bflp at babson.edu. Um, we also spend a fair amount of time um, on Instagram and our Instagram's a little bit different. We actually have, um, we have sort of education modules, um, which we like because they're little tips to help people. Um, so the Instagram there, um, I don't know if you want to share it um, in your, in your um, recording, but I would say it's instagram.com slash Babson Financial Literacy Project slash. So those are two things that I would suggest. If you have specific questions, you can email me. 
um, at our organization email. But if you'd like to learn more about and sign up for our Instagram, you can see a lot of interesting posts. And again, it's instagram.com slash Babson Financial Literacy Project slash. Is that helpful? Yeah, I think that's great. I think um, those both provide great resources for anyone willing to kind of go out their way and find information for themselves. We'll have them all linked in the show notes as well. But for now, thank you, Mrs. Khan, for coming on to the podcast. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Money Moots with Gen Z for Financial Literacy. We hope you learned something today. If you'd like to work with us, visit our website, genzforfinlit.org slash intern. Again, that's genzforfinlit.org slash intern. You can also follow us on Instagram at genzforfinlit. We also have a monthly newsletter where we go into depth on everything related to finance and business. You can sign up for it on our website as well. Until next time, it's been Matt and Steven.